Hello, and welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Levi Roots. Levi's an award-winning entrepreneur, musician, chef, author, and speaker. Born in Jamaica, he moved to the UK as a child and gained widespread fame in 2007 when he appeared on Dragon's Den, seeking investment in his reggae reggae source. As a musician, Levi's performed alongside legends such as James Brown and was nominated for Best Reggae Act at the Mobile Awards in 1998. Levi's a dad of eight and lives in London. Well, Levi Roots, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Not bad. Feeling good. Good, good. I'd like to start, Levi, today by asking if you could tell me about a significant bereavement that you've experienced in your life. Well, I lost my mom two years ago, which is like my heart being ripped out for me. Um, it's the only thing that, that makes me want to give up. But then again, it's the only thing that makes me want to continue. Mm. I can't think of anything deeper, any deeper loss. And I've had many, including my grandma, who inspired my business and my sauces and my recipes and every book that I've written is about my grandma. Losing my mom, yeah, it's a loss that I I, I find really difficult to deal with. Are you okay, Levi, to tell me about your mom's death and how she died? I didn't used to be okay to do that, to talk about, you know, any of the, you know, the four deaths that I've had that's very close to me. Um, because as a Caribbean person, that that's somehow, we tend to keep a lot of these private things in where it comes from, who knows, but that's something that we've always dealt with in that sort of way. And I'm, I'm no different, but I think lately because of my fame and, and, and all that sort of stuff. I've had to be talking about these things a little bit more than I would have. So I'm used to crying a lot lately because I'm asked a lot about these things now. So yeah, I'm 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 sort of fine. I, I find some comfort in it at times. It's difficult talking about it, but the comfort comes after. So yeah, I'm I'm fine because maybe I, I will have some comfort of memories of her after our conversation. And you said your mum died. A couple of years ago, had she been ill for a long time or was it a sudden death, Levi? We knew she was coming to the end of her time. She wasn't ill or anything for any long period. I, I think it's it's a rapid sort of age. She was 90. She deteriorated rapidly for no particular reasons, but um, sort of age. And even makes it even difficult to deal with when I never had the warning of that. I said I because I, I, I must admit that maybe my brothers and sisters, they may be of known 
But for me, she was always joy and happiness. And we had such great fun times. I never once, I must admit, never thought about maybe she's not having a good time. Because my duty was to make sure she was having the best times of her life. We holidayed together every holiday. I never went on holiday without my mom. I never traveled away without her. We were just like two peas in a pod. And that was my responsibility. So I'd say I didn't know she was perhaps ill before because that wasn't where my thinking was, you know. And for her, she was always jovial and laughed with me. When is our next trip? Where are we going next? Um, <laughs> no, which royals are you meeting? And all that kind of stuff. She would be up, you know, when I said to her, Mom, I'm doing uh, the Duke of Edinburgh Award presenting at the palace. And she would be overcome with joy and I and I live to tell her these moments of when you know her youngest son who she guided so much and when everybody said he'd never turn out to be anything because all my brothers and sisters were scholars and did all sort of stuff and work in that jobs and here was I that she sort of guided through so I never noticed that so when it happened it was a massive shock to me that I thought I'd failed in some way not noticing that it's just really wonderful hearing that when you were talking about how she'd be filled with joy when you were talking about the things you were doing and some of your achievements. But I guess she was also filled with pride. Yeah, she was, Jason. You know, as I said, I live for these moments. I, I think, you know, my successes in business is down to trying to make her happy. She was always the only one that really had some sort of faith in me, even at the pinnacle of my fame on, on BBC and the, the very night before I went on, I couldn't get anybody to give me confidence that I should break the mold of going with my guitar and being myself. I'm somebody who is not very good at maths or anything, but I love music. And everybody had said that nobody had ever sang on the show before, Leave, I don't be silly, you know, leave the props behind and go and try and, and sell your grandmother's thoughts. She was the only one that said, no, go and be you, you know. She said, you know, be yourself. Whatever that is, that's what you will come back as, as a dragon chair, if you are yourself. And so, yeah, she was a wonderful woman. She loved their children, and um, but most of all, she loved me. I know that because I spent a lot of time with her, and I miss her so then. Can you tell me a bit about her? Can you tell me a bit about her life? Yeah, she, she was superwoman. She really was. She was the most inspirational. She left Jamaica when she was in her late 20s. She was a part of the Windrush generation, which now as we celebrate 75 years um, of that, you know, that fantastic generation who came. There's a poem that's written now um, on the, the statue at Waterloo Station, the monument, the Windrush monument. And it says something like, you called and we came, which was a brilliant sentiment to that generation who came over um, to do all this work. Um, but one thing were in their mind was to send for their families to educate them. And my mom was a young woman who answered that same question. You know, the empire called and said, you know, come. And she came and worked three, four jobs, knowing that she had her children in Jamaica, left them behind with with her mom, my grandma, and uh, working three, four jobs at a time, you know, and every year, you know, with my father also, you know, she would send um, a suitcase with a, a suit and a pair of shoes in it and 
one of us would leave to come to the UK to join her and get to school and education. And she did it five times until finally it was my turn. You know, the youngest to come over and leaving my grandma, but yet not knowing my mom at the time, because she had left five years before when I was about four years old. So I didn't really have a connection with her then. But then having to rip away from my grandma, who I did think of as mom, dad, and the cat and everything, because she was everything to me, my grandma, and having to reconnect with my mom, it was the most beautiful thing because she was a carbon copy of her, her mother, my grandma. So it was, it was an easy connection to make, having lost your mom for so long, especially at that age. But she took me underneath her wings, knowing that I struggled as, as a young boy. 10-year-old coming to a, a new place in the United Kingdom away from a little village in Clarendon where I, I, you know, literally never left Clarendon, much less to fly on a plane on my own at 10 years old to come to the UK and discover this new land with new people and new language and everything. So, yeah, she was a wonderful family woman, you know, and um, she believed in me. And as I said, I set my life to make sure that I gave her back you know, everything that she invested in me as a mother, as a son, I wanted to make sure I gave everything back. And that's just, we had some fantastic times. Really did. Your grandmother who you lived with was your mother's mother. And you were saying that your grandmother had died as well. Yeah, she passed away while I was in school here in the, in the UK. And she never got to sell my successes or anything. But you know, I think everything that I am today and, and every recipe that I write and everything that is associated with my brand, I put it down to that first love that I had, you know, for my grandma. I think in those ages, as a young boy, you know, that inspiration that comes through someone who can be a, a, like a mentor, whose job it is to, to see that you're okay. Maybe not like a motherly or fatherly type of um, a relationship, I think mentors are sometimes. Um, but my grandma was somebody who taught me for a purpose. And I think sometimes that is what a mentor is. Um, she knew that I struggled and she wanted to prepare me for when I eventually came to the UK. And she wasn't particularly educated herself, my grandma, but she was a good cook, Jason. She knew everything about food. Absolutely. Um, and she made sure she taught me about that. Um, there was no playtime for me without, you know, two hours or so first with her. I don't know, maybe because I was a shoe chef, having to climb the trees to pick the ackies and the breadfruit and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but it was always an hour or so with her to learn about how to cook these big food, you know, your jerk chicken, your ackee and your salt fish, your rice and peas, your curry goat, you know, all these wonderful Caribbean original recipes. I was cooking these from the age of 10. So she was a fantastic teacher. And I, I think she was preparing me for when my time eventually came. Because I didn't understood when I saw my, every year I saw the suitcase arrive, you know, and I saw my granny crying and then I saw the suitcase. I'm thinking, you know, what's happening here? You know, then one of my brothers would leave and I would still be having a great time, you know, as a seven, eight, nine year old kid. And eventually when my time came, the only preparation I had was what my grandma taught me. I couldn't read or write. I couldn't spell my first name, which only had five letters. 
you know, and came over at the age of nearly 11 to go, you know, literally straight into secondary school and couldn't have or subtract or, as I said, you know, really non-education at all. But asked me how to cook these fantastic meals or spend some time in the kitchen and in school when it was bakery time, because cookery in classes was in school at the time. And I was always in front of the line. I could cook the whole school from now till tomorrow, eventually when I got into Tulsil, comprehensive in Brixton. And yeah, it was the preparation of my mom. So struggling and having to face racism and all the stuff that you face as a young kid coming over who'd never seen these things, I've never experienced that sort of stuff like that. It was difficult to, to sort of find your feet it was the music and food, I suppose, in, in school that attracted me. But um, as for the sums and the subtraction and reading to read or write, that sort of went over my head. Um, but eventually food and music became the making of myself. So I think some way that was sort of chiseled in me by my grandma by teaching me these two things. I was just thinking there while you were talking about cooking being an essential life skill. And then I was thinking, actually... It's not just about cooking the skill that you're sharing and that you're teaching somebody that your grandma was teaching you. It's about giving and sharing and loving. I think ultimately there's so much in food. Absolutely, totally. I've used the aspect of what you've just said of what food food brings to, to build my business on. Uh, I'm, I've always said that I'm rubbish at most things. You know, I, I always say to people, point at dragons. I always point and say, did you see me? And then I wasn't particularly that good. Um, when you really look at see, I sweated and I, you know, I got my numbers wrong and I made all the mistakes that you could possibly think of. But then I gave of myself, you know, because that's what my mom says. You know, again, we talk about giving. I, I wanted to give Levi Roots to the public. I didn't want to sell reggae reggae sauce, you know, that would have been a different pitch, but I wanted to give of myself and because I, I use the analogy of food and the growth of it and, and everything that my grandma showed me patiently as a young child, to see how food is grown and to wait until the aki is grown and knowing that you cannot open the aki forcefully, even when it looks like it's ready. Because it becomes poisonous if you don't wait for the right time. For, and Aki, by the way, is, a, is Jamaica's national fruit. But it's a wonderful fruit that you just have to wait patiently for it to open before it's ready for you to patiently pick it and then you can devour. And it's absolutely delicious. And patience and time was something that my grandma always told me about. And I wanted to give these aspects back when I, you know, eventually became a man and then my business took off. And I'm hoping that people are buying into that aspect and not buying the products, but buying what I'm trying to give. And it's that all these lessons that my grandma and my mom taught. I love that. Through food, you're giving yourself like your grandmother was giving you herself. Yeah, I love that. Whether you're hosting a sports day, a garden party or a tea party, celebrate summer in support of Marie Curie this year. By fundraising for Marie Curie, you can help our nurses provide care and compassion to people living with any terminal illness and emotional support to their families too. So let's get out there and raise money while the sun shines. Search Marie Curie Celebrate Summer to sign up today. You touched on this a little bit earlier. 
But one of the questions we ask is about what kind of conversations, so when you were younger, when you were growing up, what kind of conversations around death and dying were happening or were not happening? What kind of messages did you get about death and dying as a child? Was it something that was talked about or something that was very much kind of hidden and not to be talked about? As a Caribbean child, death and dying, you understood it from a very early age. Because you live in a, what is called a yard, which is a community, a family compound, whereas all your family um, are buried on your ancestors, are buried on your own plot. So that history is always there with you as a young child and it grows with you and, and you understand why they're there and how they became to be passed through because the stories that you listen to within the yard is also about family connection as well so these things i grew up with them and it's something that you're comfortable with burials are always personals also um amongst in that yard way of life as well too when someone dies and in Jamaica, we have this thing, I mean, in the Caribbean, it happens too, but we are known for having this thing called a, a nine night, which is the nine celebration of the nights through. But before that, there is something that is a little more known of, of, of here. It's called a setup. Um, and, and I grew up being involved in the setup. And the setup is when, I think it's the night before the nine night, or a couple of nights before that, when special parts of the family comes round and actually stay up all night. Um, no food, no nothing, but just waiting for the, for the spirit to come in and all that kind of sort of story and to take the, the spiritual you know, form away. So these things, as, as a nine, ten-year-old child, you know, we experience them um, within the family. So it's something that we hold amongst us that there is something else after um, because that's why my grandma used to rejoice so much when there is a death in the family, because it's not that she's mourning death as how it is. She's more rejoicing that there's something after. So that was always something that was around me. Later on in life, I took on a different mantle from that, joining the two together, saying that there is an, an experience after, but the real celebration is about now, is about while they were alive. Like I said with my mom, the memories that I have with her is not one of sad I'm missing. I cry, yes, when I speak about it, but most of the time, it's moments of joy, it's that rejoicing, because you know the spirit has been gone to another place, and what you're left with is just memories. And the memories should be the better memories, not of sad memories. Hence, I do rejoice uh, all the time. I'm just looking at it from there in my office there, and she's smiling away. And it, 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 you know, for me, this is what I take back from death. I go to a mausoleum and I, I worship there and I reconnect with her and I take the messages that she sends. So there isn't a goodbye at all because in here, she's there all the time. And going out a mausoleum to pray is a moment when I feel a little bit closer to her physical form. But um, I don't believe they go anywhere at all because those memories stay with you. I was going to ask you about your experience of grief and how that's been for you. Um, you know, certainly in the last couple of years since your mum had died, I get the sense that one thing that helps you maybe is going to the mausoleum 
just for anybody listening, Levi, could you tell me about any other things that help you in your grief? The house, our original home, where, you know, where she was one of the few Caribbean people from those days who actually owned her home, Brixton in South London. And it always makes me proud of how she managed to do that as, as a Windrush generation. And um, going past the regular and going to the mausoleum helps me to reconnect with her. But again, it's the memories that I have with her is going back to Jamaica and, and having fun with her on holiday, taking her to America and seeing her grandson, you know, getting married and things like that is just a joy to, to remember. And you've got siblings and we know everybody experiences grief in a different way and experiences bereavement differently. And the reason for that is our experience of grief is very closely linked to the relationship we had with the person who we've lost. So if your relationship's different with that person, then you're going to have a different experience of grief. Sometimes in families, that's not as straightforward because some people don't realize that. And some people will be having very different experiences afterwards. I just wondered if having conversations with your siblings about your mum, your grandma, whether that was something else that was helpful as well, you know, reminiscing. That's a very interesting topic you've touched on there. And I don't think I've experienced anybody touched on that you're right you know bereavement and the way you feel of among families and different people it's, it's a different reaction in certain ways it's one that we are afraid to delve ourselves into i am anyway i lost my brother um a year after my mom we never had a good relationship my brother and um we were concane and able type we couldn't get on when he passed away just after my mom i was still in mourning for my mom so I did not get the time to even think to repair that divide between us in death. Because there is a time when I, I believe in death when you can repair, which is the forgiveness time. Not the forgiveness of the other person, the forgiveness of your own self, of what you feel and, and rip it out and get rid of it. There's always that moment. I knew my mom's death was connected to do with why we both always, you know, my mom's love is like two of us trying to vibe for her. So when, when she passed, I spent all my time thinking about her and did not get the time to, to heal, the, you know, that rift with my brother. So it will always be one, you know, for me that the slight guilt in some ways that something that you could have done. And I think my mom would have wanted me to do that. So yeah, it's one that you have to live with and, and you have to be truthful with yourself when you could have done something in, in that moment. So it is very different. You know, now I just actually picked out a picture of him, you know, a few weeks ago and dusted it down and put it up. And I think it is that healing process was actually just began a few weeks ago when I picked out that picture. Because to be honest, before that, I wouldn't have done that. But I think because my mom has been gone a couple of years, it's given me the time now to perhaps think that maybe this is my moment to rip it out and, and begin again with this process of, of healing. So his, his name is Trevor, by the way. So and his picture is up as I begin that healing process. So I've actually seen him in my house um, and seen him comfortable, comfortable with it. 
So, yeah, it's a tough question. As I said, it's not one that um, I was faced with before. So thank you for that, for me to, to express it. There's something there about, um, I want to say giving yourself permission, but that's not right. It, I just love that story of taking out the photograph, you know, and dusting it off and beginning some sort of process. And I'm I'm sure it's not a straightforward one, but, you know, and you use the word healing and, but just allowing yourself that, I think, as well, you know, and, and being open to seeing what comes, allowing yourself to grieve him as well. Yeah, you've got to find your reason to. And we both could have never admitted that it was the we were fighting because we wanted to love this woman the most. You know, he, he would mom in the middle of it. And I think it was a time of losing both of them. It's the only time that I could see um, that that was what our grief really was between each other. And if that's the case, then it doesn't deserve for us to be at each other. It, if we knew that this is what it was, it was a love for something that was pure and, and honest, somebody that has brought us, like I said, you know, this woman that brought us from the depths of poverty in Jamaica, has come and worked three, four jobs to send for her children and educate them and then for them to become Levi Roots and Trevor was an engineer and doing all these different things. That's a fantastic love from a woman there. And that's who we were both fighting over. So it was the moment of losing both for me to actually admit that. And now to be able to look at my brother's image and actually see him for the, for the beautiful person that he was as an individual and as my brother. You've mentioned your brother's name, Trevor. Can I ask your mum's name and your grandma's name, Levi? Yeah, my mum's name was Doreen. Doreen May Graham. And uh, my grandma's name was Miriam Small. Miriam Small. Thank you. I'm just going to change tack a bit. One of the aims of this podcast is to provide support to people who might be grieving themselves and or caring for someone who has a terminal illness. And in fact, I was just talking to a colleague yesterday who'd been speaking with a woman who said she she was grieving. I think it was her husband who died. And she said the thing that she gets from listening to the podcast by hearing other people's experiences of death and dying and loss and grief is that she doesn't feel as alone in her experience. One of the other aims of the podcast is to encourage people to talk about death and dying, sort of encourage people to have conversations about it and plan ahead if they can. Because what we know is that if people plan ahead for death as much as you possibly can, so one example of that might be writing a will, then those who are left behind can have better outcomes and a different experience. So on that, I wanted to ask whether you ever think about your own death. Not now, not lately, no. I'm having too much of a good time, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm being totally honest with you, it's not a thought, of, it's not a moment thought of it, that, and, and, and preparing, that's different. I think that's two different, different things. Because as a business man myself personally, that preparation is always there. What I'm saying is that you prepare for that financially, for that. 
But as for the preparation within the, in the mind, it's not something where I I go to. I, I you know I obviously you know you you do your accountancy pre- preparation, which is normal within business. But um, I, I don't allow my mind to go there. Especially, I said that I have a young family, you know, I'm my boy Christopher, ten year old. There's no way you can be thinking behind it. Even though I'm, I'm what I in my sixties, I'm what sixty four. Um, but I feel thirty four because I know that's where my my mind has to be, and and that's where my plans are of how I want to feel at this particular moment. And I do feel that, and having that thought process has allowed me to be able to live that way as well with my body and and the way I eat and my diet and the way that I present myself. So no, it's not something that one can prepare an eye anyway, prepare for mentally and thinking that, oh, you know, when I do that, when, when I die, you know, that's gonna happen and, and that sort of stuff. Well, I, I thought you you were probably thinking of like a will type type thing. I think it's a great thing to have preparation for, you know, for that sort of stuff. But um it's not something that I try to think of too much in, in the brain. I'm too busy having a great time. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. I was also thinking about kind of funerals as well and funeral planning. And I, I, w- I was just wondering whether when your mum died and you were having her funeral, whether you knew what she'd wanted, whether it was something she'd spoke about. When my mom died, I, I knew what I wanted. You know, I, I didn't know what she, how she was. We never really discussed it, but I knew that she was a humble woman. And she would have accepted, you know, whatever, you know, we had done as a family um, to, to be able to put her to rest finally. But uh, I wanted to pull out the stops for her. I wanted to be remembered forever. She deserved that. So I put her in a mausoleum so I can go there and worship her and know that she's there. And that's what I wanted for her. On the other hand, for myself, I, I talk to my own family here and I tell them that I'm like, I'm my wishes is like what my mom would have. If someone had asked her, she would have said, you know, whatever can be done. I don't want the pomp and circumstances as what I gave my mom. I, I just I just want to um just go quietly as I've discussed with my family. Is a legacy something that's important to you, like how you'd like to be remembered? I think no. I Jason, to be honest, is I think what you do should be a legacy. I don't believe that we are any different than the animals, you know, how they, we are the same. We are, we're put here for a purpose. We need to find what our purpose is. If you do find it and you find in some ways that you've adhered to that throughout this long life or, or this short time that you're here um, for your purpose, then that, that's your achievement. I think I've achieved some of what I was put here to do, um, which is to you know, to live a good life. And if you have a family, to make sure that you, you deal with your family and leave them in a good place. And then, you know, just like the bees, you know, just here to procreate and then move on. We can't take it with us in, in any way, whatever wealth or whatever we've accumulated in our life, you know, we leave all that. So it's great to be able to build something to leave, you know, leave for the family. And this is where I'm at. And this is what, what my mom taught me in some sort of way that it's about what you leave. Um, for the family, not what you have now. Just my last question. How has it been for you today being on the Marie Curie couch and having these conversations? I love Marie Curie. I love brands that stand for something, you know, brands that, that inspires. Whenever time I'm asked to, to, to have a chat, you know, it's always a joy. But I also, I'm, I know that it's always one of these moments that gets me 
gets me up because normally people want to talk about oh, it might what's the dragons then about and now it's peter jones and all that kind of stuff like that and which is great but i, I know when something like Marie Curie calls it, it's more deeper and you never hear for the emotions that come through. So yeah, it's always a joy to be able to express myself in this rare way um, that doesn't normally happen. So thank you. Well, Levi Roots, thank you for joining me on the Marie Curie couch. Thank you for sharing some of Doreen, Miriam and Trevor's story. And it's been my joy and pleasure to meet you. Thanks. Thank you, Jason. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death, and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie is here to help from planning ahead to coping with bereavement. You can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. This podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Content. The music featured is Time Lapse by Panoceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.